This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, guys, we have a very special guest on this week. Me and Steve put together our hit list of people that we wanted to get on this show, and this individual happened to be at the very top of it. And I'm happy to say that Steve used every relationship he had to get him on the show. So I'm super excited. Steve, why don't you give an introduction to our uh, fantastic guest this week? Well, first of all, thank you, Tucker. I am super excited to be back on the show. We had a little bit of a week off in preparation, just a couple things going on. I know you were traveling and I was recouping from a trip of my own. So here we are. We have a super special guest. It's none other than Randy Sebastian of Renaissance Homes. And as I kind of just mentioned to him off the air, I think it's a testament to the success of this podcast, just being able to get a big dog like him on the show and, and be able to pick his brain and get some wonderful insight into Portland's real estate market from such a successful builder. So Randy, thank you for being on the show. Steve, thanks. Tucker, thank you. So just to give a little background to our listeners, now, I don't know you super well, Randy, but I've seen you probably about 1,500 times over the last 20 <laughs> years at a certain gym that we both go to, and it's actually the same gym where Tucker and I met, which is Club Sport right. in Tualatin, Oregon. How long have you been a member there? I joined Club Sport, I think, in 1999-ish, maybe 2000. Yeah. Um, I'm right there with you. I joined it in 1998, actually. It was just ending the Sports Nation run. What about right. you, Tucker? You know, funny story. My senior year of high school was 1998. We had our senior year all-nighter there when it was Sport Nation. And, you know, I won't go any deeper into that. But it was <laughs> that was my first experience with Sport Nation. Turned into club sport, I think, a couple years thereafter. After I came back from college my senior year, played basketball there in the summertime. And then, obviously, when I came back from college... In 2002, that's when we met, playing ball there, and I've been a member ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We both were getting in the mortgage industry, and we were like, hey, I know you from somewhere, and, and there we were. And along those lines, since we're talking about gyms, Randy, congratulations on all your success with your bodybuilding. I know that's something that you take great pride in, and you work your tail off at that. Probably no differently than what you do on Thank the business you. front with your company. So let's go right into that. Tell us about your company's background when you started building, when you started Renaissance, if that was a different time or if it was always Renaissance that you built as, and what is Renaissance's business model, target audience, and product? We'll go through these one by one a little bit slower, but go for it. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy start. I was, again, it goes, it goes gets back to a gym, right, for us. So I was in the gym in Southeast Portland in 1984. I was a sophomore at Portland State, and saw this guy roll up in a 1984 Corvette. I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I build houses. I'm like, and, and in 1984, everybody was leaving here. Nobody wanted to be in Portland, Oregon at the time. If you had anything going on, you're going to California or Hawaii or some other place. But I was stuck going to Portland State. And he said, I build houses. I'm like, interesting. How many homes do you, are you building? He goes, oh, 13. It's like, wow. And I said, how long does it take you to build a house? And he goes, about six months. I said, so you have 13 houses going right now, and it takes six months to build. Yeah. And I go, how much to make a house? And he goes, 10000 I was like, whoa. So to me, I'm like doing the math. I'm like, that's a pretty good gig. So I had, believe it or not, a 
I was one of my own business, right? So I had a uh, food truck, really, you know, early food truck. And I thought, you know what? Building houses is a lot better than, you know, being a food vendor. I'm not saying anything about food vendors, but it's like just a different gig. And so the next day I drove to the state and I said, I want to be a home builder. And they gave me some forms to fill out and I had to get a bond. And that's it. I knew nothing. And all I knew is I was going to build a house. And it was in Southeast Portland. I sold my little shaved ice business for like 20 grand. And I had a BMW and I sold it. So I had enough money to buy a lot and start one house in Southeast, 126 in Holgate. And everybody thought I was crazy because builders were going out of business in 1984. Everybody's leaving. I thought, if I can get just one person to buy this house, that'd be great. Well, it sold for $39,000. The guy that bought its buddy or brother wanted a house. And that first year, I was 21. My first year in business, I built, sold, and closed 26 houses. Wow. And I knew nothing. It was crazy. Wow. And so I just kept rolling. So you did 26 houses your first. I mean, that's a huge number to jump right in. I mean, you, you went right in the deep end. I did. I just went for it. I, and I loved it. It was like this. And at the time, there were two movies out. Again, I'm 20, right? 21. Indiana Jones and Wall Street. And I thought building is just like that. You're, it's adventurous. You're outside and you're dealing with money. So it's Wall Street. And I just, I loved it. It was like, I found exactly what I wanted to do early on. I just, and at the time... There were savings and loans giving you loans on their lots that they wanted to, to get rid of because they took a lot of lots back, right, from the bad times. And so it was just perfect. And uh, I know we'll talk about the city of Portland, but I could go into the city of Portland at 8 o'clock in the morning and come out by 5 o'clock that day with a permit. One day. Wow. Yeah, that's then. crazy. <laughs> One day. I swear to God. I would go in in the morning and I would go through all the levels, all the bureaus. And I I get a permit in a day, and that's what I would. That's how it worked. And uh, I think I was like the number one permit puller in 1986 in Portland or something. So it was really fun. Still, do you is. remember offhand what a building permit cost back in 1984, approximately? It was like 1,200 bucks. It was before SDCs came in and all that stuff. It was we were selling our house. I would sell my homes for like. 39 to 45,000 bucks and lots were like 13. Yeah. The permits were just nothing. And I remember I was fishing in Alaska in the mid eighties and uh, there was a builder on the boat with me and he was talking, he, he was building and he was from like Santa Monica and he was like a building permit is $24,000. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> <For a> building <laughs> permit. Obviously it's double that now, right here. Right. So yeah, Portland was really fun and easy. Now it's just nothing but tough. Right. Were you called Renaissance Homes at that time, or did you have a different company name? It was Landmark Homes in the first year and a half, and then I switched to Renaissance in 1986. Yeah. Yeah. I have to tell you, it's a beautiful, beautiful name. It really has a, a beautiful flow to it. It's tough to spell. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> when I changed, when I went down to the state to file the corporation page for Renaissance, they said, how do you spell it? And at the time, it's like, do you have a dictionary? So... <laughs> I spilled it a lot. And even now I get tripped up. Is it one N or two? Right. So <laughs> that's funny. So here and now today, who's your target audience? What's your target product? That is a great question. We do about half of our product is in the city of Portland. And it's basically people that want to live in Portland. And as Tucker knows, that's that's everybody. People from mid twenties 
to mid 60s, 70s. Just people want to live close in and, and enjoy, you know, the Portland walkable, bikeable life. And so that's who our market is in Portland. And then we do do some development, Wilsonville, Sherwood, like us, we go Westland, and it's typically more, more of a family, you know, oriented client. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how is business today, Randy? Where are you building and what are some of your products? I've been to your Wilsonville development. That's a beautiful, beautiful spot there. How, how that was available, I have no idea in this day and age, but to have those gorgeous houses right there with boat slips, actually had an offer, contingent offer on one of them. You, you may or may not know this and <laughs> couldn't quite get their house sold. It's right. a long, long story there and it okay. doesn't have a happy ending for me, but I toured your model home. That actually was the model home that we had tied up there for a little bit okay. um, on, a, on a bumpable offer. Cool, cool product there. Where else are you building and what else do you have going on? Well, we have that. That's the Renaissance Boat Club. Um, it's about half sold out, 33 lots there. We have a few small developments in West Lynn and a lot of spot lots in Lake Oswego, different kind of estate type homes. We're in first edition Lake Oswego. We have a site that's really kind of, it's under the radar, but it's crazy good. It's over off of Highway 224 in Clackamas, over by the old Clackamas High School on Webster Road. 35, 8 to 10,000 foot flat lots, and we're building 2,100 foot one level homes, three car garages with outside living, and they're right around 500, five to 600. And they're, we have like none up in our soul. So it's going really well. And then yeah, I uh, imagine those probably moved pretty quick, or they are oh, moving quick. It's on fire. Especially then, with the completion of the Selwood Bridge. I have to think that really, really helped you out there. From that Milwaukee area, you know, we all know it. I mean, it's, it's kind of a sleeping giant because you can get downtown fast. I mean, from this site, to Burnside and MLK, it's 14 minutes. I mean, it's fast. Yeah. You know, that was on a Sunday with no traffic, but yeah, it's pretty quick. So, and then obviously the, you know, what, what takes up, even though it's 50% of my homes, when it takes up 98% of my time is the city of Portland. And we are, you know, building a lot of infill and I, you know, I, I love it. It's fun. It's fun to be part of what's going on in Portland. It's fun to, you know, build a house in really tough in a really really tough situation. Now, my superintendents won't say that, but I will say <laughs> this: it's fun to build in a tough situation. Traffic, power lines, neighbors, all that stuff. But when you're done, you have a little jewel box that you know is not on the market more than a day. It's pretty fun. So we have a good time with that. Hey, Randy, I don't think we asked this. How many employees are actually uh, not subcontractors, but actual employees of Renaissance? Do you have? We have 28 employees. 28. And we have five salespeople. We have people in, in our marketing department. We have an accounting department. We have, you know, some clerical. We have superintendents that work for us. So we have a land department. So it's, yeah, we have 28 people. Cool. How yeah. would you say your product is different today than the homes you've built in the past? And how are they the same? It's much different. Back in the 2000, you know, 2000 to 2006, we really built a suburban product. It was, you know, kind of big four-bedroom family homes, two, three-car garages, you know, kind of traditional-esque. It was really two product lines. We had our, you know, kind of high-end custom and our production. We have 11 product lines now based on the lots that come our way. And we have, like I said, we, we do so much different. We're doing a lot of moderns. We're doing, you know, vintage traditionals. We're doing high-end spec homes. You know, when we're, we do our production stuff and our one-level stuff. So we have a design department as well, and we're having to design 
for whatever lot we get, I mean, we do have some stuff off the shelf, but there's so much custom design happening here because the lots are so expensive and you want to, you know, maximize, you know, the view or the streetscape or whatever the lot has. So it's easier to spend a month in design than build something that maybe won't be as palatable on the market. Yeah, especially yeah, when especially you have a, a lot of the one-off lot situations, you know, the infill stuff that's going on, which, you know, that leads us to a question that uh, I'll let Steve take the front end of this question in terms of, you know, doing a lot of spot lots or infill lots versus subdivisions. And then I'll go into the second part, which uh, we may get a little controversial there, but uh, it's something that I like to talk about. So, Steve, why don't you kick off the first part of that question? I'll go into the second. Yeah. So, I mean, I've noticed, Randy, and you've talked about it a little bit here today, infill. You're doing a lot of spot lots in various areas in addition to the subdivisions that you do. You know, many builders shy away from that for efficiency's sake. Builders at your level anyway, builders at your size, they, they want to go into one area, one subdivision, bring in all their people, bring in all the materials, and then just divide and conquer and, and really, you know, be quick and efficient in that manner. Yet you are doing a lot of the spot lots, and I get it. I mean, in Portland, you kind of have to do that, and that's probably part of the desirability of that. But how do you deal with the inherent inefficiencies of that, and what's your theory on the matter? Well, that was me coming in and building huge tracks, but... When the tide turned last time, we had 380 lots in Forest Grove in one site. We had a 300 lotter in Bend, and actually a couple of them. We had stuff in Vancouver, Seattle. So we had 2,000 lots on our balance sheet that we had to deal with. And, you know, obviously the economy is good now, but I just don't want to put myself and my company in that situation. So we're doing smaller developments and then one-off lots. And it's more work. It's much more coordination but it's also a safer business plan. You don't have such a land overhang if something changes. So that's it's really kind of a strategic decision. We're going to work a lot harder, but we're going to be safer. And I really enjoy building in the city and designing something for the neighborhood. It's, it's I'm having more fun doing that maybe because I've been doing this for 32 years. It's something it's kind of back to my roots because I was I did start out in Southeast doing one-off lots and then we got to be, do the big developments and so anyway, and, and I just knew if we went back to the city and just really made it a priority and had the right staff, it would get easier. And it is easier. It's not as horrible as I think a lot of people think it is. I'm actually having a lot of fun with it. So Yeah, it, it doesn't. It's a challenge. At first, I mean, it's always a challenge, but it becomes increasingly easier as you kind of lay the tracks. You get used right. to the systems. You get to know the people. That's a big part of it, obviously. But that kind of takes us into the second part of this. And I and I do I have a lot of respect for that business model. I built my entire business off of that exact model. We right. you know, we're not yeah. a big production builder. We're a spec one off type builder. But the reason why I like infill and whether it be in Portland or Lake Oswego or Dunthorpe, obviously they come with inherently larger margins potentially for a builder as well. So, you know, it's more attractive for us to tackle one of those projects versus five production style homes. It just, you know, you can afford to put the additional time and human capital into developing a plan for those lots because it makes sense financially. And at the end of the day, you have a very desirable product that, like you said, people are lining up to buy because they want to be in these areas that are already, you know, they've, they've filled in. They have all the amenities. They ha- they're the place where people want to be. It's not on the outskirts where the amenities are gradually filling in. So, right. you know, they, there's a, a reason why we want to be there as builders, and there's a reason why people want to be there as buyers. With that said, though, right now, you know, the city of Portland has been in the news for all kinds of crazy stuff. But the basis of all of it is there seems to be a lot of disdain for infill redevelopment right now. And what 
do you think the reason is for that? Now, I, you know, I know I saw you post something on your Facebook a while ago about some, some hate mail that maybe you guys received. I've received a ton of it. We get nasty messages all the time. I've got a death threat I framed and kept in the office here from some old lady in the first edition neighborhood, Lake Oswego. You know, obviously, I look at it uh, like a little bit funny. Maybe it's not so funny, but I, what am I going to do? Turn her in, and you know, I get on the front page of the Lake Oswego Review for a developer that has an old lady threatening him. You know, so you know. How do you feel about that? Why do you think that's the case in Portland so much right now? Well, I mean, we've seen this coming. Obviously, Senate Bill 100 came into effect and just basically choked our land supply. And this is something that, man, back in the 80s, it was going on. People did, you know, they'd, they'd fight our subdivisions. People would blockade roads where we're trying to put a road through or, you know, you blow a cul-de-sac. Something that was a cul-de-sac forever was really a road that was supposed to go through. And so, I mean, I can remember, you know, this is just nothing new. The fight was in the suburbs for a long time when you're developing an old fairbird orchard that people were around and, you know, and then everybody, they complain about trees and creeks. And, and, I, and I go to city council, I'll say, you're going to hear a lot about parks. You're going to hear a lot about trees. You're going to hear a lot about a lot about schools, but it's really about traffic. People don't want somebody driving by their house that isn't already, you know, that's really what it's about. So now the fight is, we know, is in the city and because the city's become a desirable place and you have a lot of people that are, Portland's really unique. You can live in the fabric of the city. You can do that in Portland, you can do it in San Francisco, you can do it in Boston. You can't do it in Seattle. Seattle has this kind of gothic downtown that really nobody lives in and it's dead. And then you have Suburbs, you can live in, you can be cool in Bellevue or Kirkland or someplace like that, but you can't live in the, you know, the fabric of the city. So Portland's super unique. And then you have the pricing has gone up so fast that you have these homes that maybe somebody is out of state and they're renting their, you know, their grandma's house they inherited over in Clinton for 1500 bucks a month. Well, that's a million dollar location and people are renting and all of a sudden, you know, somebody like us sends a letter or knocks on a door and then it's sold. And so you have a lot of really pissed off people that are displaced renters. I get that. And they're saying, well, I can't afford to live in the city. Well, the city's gotten to be very, very expensive. And so you have that and you do have some, you know, residents that are, that will complain, but it's really just what happens when you're, when you're changing a neighborhood, people don't like change. They don't like, you know, obviously there is some displacement, but a lot of the stuff we tear down is, there's a reason for it. <laughs> there's, there's home, you know, I, mean, I don't want to say the word, I mean, I guess, I mean, drug users in it. And they're just drug houses and we have to go in and trap the rats so the rats don't go to the neighbors. I mean, there's just, you know, in some houses, they're just obsolete. They're full of mold or whatever they are. So, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just what happens. And I've seen this coming for a long time and, you know, we're in the middle of it and it's, you know, it's property rights and you, they can't stop you from doing what code allows you to do with your property. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, and I think that we're kind of getting to the knuckle here, and I saw this happen in first edition. We were kind of on the front edge of first edition going through the dramatic change. Yeah. I caught the brunt of a lot of the the pushback on that. Now people are starting to a little more, not totally, but they're a little more accepting of the fact that things are going to change. Development is happening. There isn't quite as much pushback, and I think maybe the city of Portland will eventually get there to that point. I totally agree with you. In fact, we have come late to the first edition party. You were the one of the stakeholders and got in and riled everybody up. But we built seven homes in first edition last eight, ten months. We've had zero complaints, zero. There hasn't been any because I think people are just resigned to the fact. Well, it's changing. Now well, expect a Christmas card from you, then you know maybe. <laughs> <the show. laughs> Thank you. 
And here's another, you know, like East Moreland, that those, you know, talk about death threats. Yeah, that kind of stuff was going on over there. I mean, I was maybe, you know, we had people, you know, blocking our, our subs so they couldn't get to work and all that. The last couple of times we've torn things down, they haven't even appealed it. So they're like, okay, you know, it's people get riled up and then they realize that you're doing things within code. You're, you know, it's, it's not a horrible situation and they have their lives that they, that they deal with. I mean, yeah. years ago I was building a, a commercial building in West Lynn and there was a neighborhood activist and I feel bad for this, but I did say this. He was complaining about the height of it and he was, and uh, we were built, we were framing this building. It was my old office building on in Willamette, the Willamette area. And I looked at him, I said, don't you have anything better to do? And he looked at me and goes, no, I don't. Turned around, looked at his shoes, and walked away. And I thought he was going to jump off. I felt bad, actually, but it's true. I mean, a lot of these people have nothing better to do than so complain about people that are getting shit done. That's, and, that's so true. That's a good point. Because Tucker's acknowledged most of his hate mail comes from females. And I think there's something to that where, you know, they're probably at home a lot. There's not a lot else going on from the ones he's hearing from. I'm not saying that in right. general about females, but... And, we keep the uh, statistics they, deep, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm being really careful on this one. You you, you see yeah, that, Tucker? Don't align. But, but I think that's true. I mean, people who are busy and and moving and shaking and and going to work and coming home and 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 then have family stuff going on, I don't know that they're looking across the street and going and stewing and and trying to figure out how to cause problems for people. Well, and, and in fact, if they are an owner, not a renter on the street, their property values, what Tucker does, what I do, will be going up tens of thousands of dollars with the new home. Yeah, I, I said to the uh, a lot of the people in the first edition neighborhood, you know, you're welcome for uh, basically turning your two hundred thousand dollar teardown into a four hundred thousand dollar teardown. So now, when you do need to move into assisted living and your family can't stand you, you can afford it. So you you know, that's uh, that's the reality of it. But you know, nobody gets to that reality until they need to sell themselves, and until they get there, they fight it. And so it's it's a process. We obviously have gotten there in first edition. I think Portland will get there eventually. But this takes me to the next point. And my question is. What do you think about the dynamic right now? Obviously, we have the urban growth boundary. We have Metro saying they're not going to expand it. But then we also have people on the political side. They're talking about the housing crisis, and they're trying to institute things that only make it more expensive for us to build, like hand demoing, the teardown tax, which fortunately right. died. But the, the hand demo is somewhat of that. The massive increase in potentially the cost to cut down any trees over a certain diameter. Uh, the new sidewalk thing. There, There's all kinds of things that it just seems like it's never-ending in terms of costing us more money, which ultimately it comes two ways, right? If, if it's going to cost more to develop, either the people selling the property get less or the people buying it pay more. That's the way it works. So really, you're robbing from your own citizens. You're not sticking it to the builders. And it just it drives me crazy that, that people don't understand this. And so what, what do you think about that dynamic and what you're hearing out there? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, you know, the politicians want to sound, we need to do something about the homeless crisis. Let's, uh, let's stick the developer. Well, really what that's doing is increasing the cost of housing, you know, for everybody. And, and the higher it goes, the less, the less people can afford it and the worse the housing problem is. So like I said, we just keep soldiering on and, and know that we're not going to change it. All we can do is work within the system. And, you know, one thing that did happen though, We've done a lot of vote by annexations, lost a lot of vote by annexations, lost millions on vote by annexations. And the governor just put into, because the urban growth boundary wasn't expanded, I've been arguing forever, hey, you have all this land that's in the urban growth boundary, but you have to annex it by vote, and it doesn't get in. That can't be counted. Well, the governor just said, okay, all the vote by that that law is out. 
So there will be a freshet of ground coming in that is in the urban growth boundary that couldn't come in because of votes. And we're talking Sherwood, we're talking Canby, Newburgh, Oregon City, a lot of places, West Lynn. So the vote's out, which is great, you know, so that that's at least a help. But, you know, when Metro does their stuff, I mean, they do look at, there's a lot of teardown stuff. There's a lot of places where things are just rotten. And so we don't want to turn into Detroit, right? I mean, we are, we are reusing our land. So I don't know. For me, we can't turn into Houston where there's no zoning. And we're a lot like Vancouver, British Columbia, where it's super tight and tough. And it's just going to get more expensive. We still are cheaper than San Francisco or Seattle. So yeah, I I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, obviously having a constraint on the supply is good, but of course, Metro looks at a lot of the um, underutilized property that maybe has an older dilapidated structure on it. But the problem is, of course, that sometimes those structures are being used as cheaper rentals or some form of low-end right. business or something. And it takes time to let that stuff work itself through the market and actually sell to an end redeveloper. And so it's a very slow process. The faucet is on drip, 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 you know, in terms of adding inventory or p- places where we can add inventory to the market. So... Yeah, I think you're right. We're going to be a lot like, you know, uh, what do you say, Vancouver, B.C., where it's, you know, real estate prices are it, it's pretty choked off in terms of additional real estate that could be created. And so prices have just gotten high there. That's just the right. way that they are. And I think that we're, you know, on that train. Obviously, I don't think we're going to get that high. But when you have a constraint of supply, we have a lot more people moving here. We have a lot more demand. I mean, when I graduated college in 2002, literally nobody moved to Portland. The only reason you moved here was because you had family here, right? Nobody ever moved here for anything other than that. Now, I was in Scottsdale last weekend, and randomly, I met three people at this bar that said they were flying to Portland the next day because they knew people here, they were interested in moving here, and it's like, where did this come from? I mean, I know people are saying that, but it's crazy. Yeah. I lived my whole life in a 20-mile radius right here. I love it. I've traveled all over the world. This is the best place. I mean, we have it all. So people are coming here, and, you know, one thing – about this constrained land supply, when things do turn, I, I don't think the market's going to crash. I think it's going to slow down just because of affordability. We're not going to see prices drop, I don't think, but it'll, it'll level off. We just are creating 50% of the homes that we are building 10 years ago, and you have people moving in, but 80% of the builders are out. Of, you know, guys just got walloped last time. I mean, they, they don't have bonding ability. They don't, there's no banks really lending. And so it's tough to build a house. It's never been harder to build a house in 32 years that I've been doing this than right now. I mean, it's just tough. And so you don't see many new builders getting into the game because the, the barrier to entry is so high and used to be so low. So you have, like you said, um, there's a huge demand and very little supply. It just is. And, and you brought up on an interesting point, Randy. It's almost like there's a disconnect between the different government agencies because on the one hand, you've got Metro, who I think you're acknowledging and it made a lot of sense. They're saying let's not expand the urban growth boundary too fast because there's infill to do and there's homes that we want to turn. But then you have like the city of Portland that may not be quite on the same page. (laughs) So it's almost there's like there's a little conflict going on because they're not making it easy to do that. Well, and again, city of Portland, I mean, it's run by politicians that are basically being whipsawed based on, you know, the the voters. And, you know, I don't think they can make a lot of the right decisions politically. You know, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Obviously, we have state land use laws. We have building codes. We have things that that trump people's political ideas. And, you know, we, we just work within those. And if they change, they change, you know. So, yeah, there's always going to be. I think Ted will make a great mayor. I think he'll be better than the guy is in. 
he'll have to answer to citizens that are mad about the latest tree that got cut down. I got a call. This is kind of funny. I got a call from the Tribune the other day, and they said, do you know you have somebody sitting in your tree? I go, (laughs) no, I didn't know that. (laughs) My land guy's out of town, and he would have got the call. So, no, I didn't know that. Where is it? And they go, oh, in Multnomah Village. I go, okay, well, it's a tree that actually we've changed the floor plan in the city to change. I mean, we have a permit to cut it down, but we're trying to save it. It is a cool tree. It's an old cedar. And so we changed the floor plan to try to cut it down. We won't know if we need to cut it down until we're excavating in six weeks. And so this lady's in the tree. And I thought to myself, I went to TEDx, you know, Saturday. And there was a guy who's well-spoken. His name is Israel. He's talked about the homeless problem in Portland. And I thought, you know, Portland doesn't have a tree problem. We have a homeless problem. Here we have some woman trying to stop us from cutting down a tree when we're really trying to provide housing that benefits everybody, you know, and, and, and that kind of leads me to the, you know, the, the NIMBY, the not in my backyard. I look at those people anymore as really as part of the homeless problem. They're creating barriers to us and they have what they have, which is housing. And they're trying to stop other people from having the same thing. And the more housing that is built, the better it is for everybody. Randy, moving on, you kind of started touching on this, and I think this is going to be a really interesting topic for our listeners. Learning the lessons we learned from the last downturn, how are you seeing builders be more cautious this time around? And you started to touch on it that some of them just aren't in the game. They just couldn't get back into it after the last, what we sometimes joke as the Holocaust. The real estate Holocaust. The real estate Holocaust, yeah. There really aren't enough builders out there left to discuss, you know, strategies, (laughs) because everybody got wiped out. You have you know, the national people that have Wall Street money and they have plenty of advantages because of that. They have tax advantages and also obviously financial abilities. But most of the guys in the game still are doing smaller developments. You don't see really people doing big major developments where they have huge land supplies. People aren't really going too far out and building, you know, a lot of homes in Hood River, for example, or places that are pretty far out. So, you know, and I think I think actually um Banks not lending as much and land supply and, and so hard and barrier to entry. I think it's really kind of keeping a lot of people in check that maybe could get out over their skis. We've made the conscious decision to just start 10 homes a month. So we're doing 10 a month. So that's it. We do 120 homes a year. If the market wants to push us to 150, we're not doing it because I'm scaled at 10. I have all my people are as busy as they need to be. I can find 10 buyers a month. I can have, I have 10 good sub crews. My subs can handle 10 a month. My employees can do 10 a month. Obviously, I'm busy with other things. So I only feel like building 10 homes a month. We used to do 30 homes a month. We used to build, sell, and close a house a day. And that was a lot of work. And it required 108 employees and a lot more overhead. And to be honest with you, I'm much happier at this size, regardless of what the economy is doing. That's great to hear. That's a great strategy, too, just to really, because I think the human psychology is so boom and bust in this business. When times are good, people just, they really ramp up and get out ahead of them, and then comes the bust. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a matter of public record, but I made a ton of money in 2006, and I lost double that in 2009. So you could ramp up, but it can bite you. So for us, Again, we're just we're just happy doing our ten a month. And you know what? The homes are perfect. Our clients are happy. Our subs can keep up. My employees are it's just a good pace. And I probably wouldn't want to do fifteen a month. Ten's great. You mentioned the national builders, Randy. What percentage of Portland's market is that? Is it about fifty percent, would you say? 
maybe higher. If you look at the permits pulled, the national, you know, the Wall Street builders, Horton, Lennar, and Polygon, I think they've run by something else, are pulling, I'm going to guess, 70% of the permits. I mean, it's wow. a lot. Yeah. Big. Oh, I didn't know it was that much. That's um, yes, yeah, it's huge. That's good to know. Well, then it, it sounds like, but really for the infill stuff, it's the other thirty percent of builders that are really doing most of the infill. Because I don't see a ton of that them in the infill game. They must be more of kind of a little bit more on the outskirts for the most part. Yeah, they're doing a lot of Vancouver stuff, a lot of you know suburban stuff, a lot of Happy Valley stuff. They're doing you know they're out. They're out there where they can take 30, 40 acres down and do that. And, yeah. you know, it's kind of like they're the army and you know, we're the special forces. We kind of have our own little small little tactical group where we go in and we'll build a house on the corner of 30th and Stark, you know, where you would never think you could build one. But you can, you know, it's, it's a great way to put that, by the way. That would be very tactical. That's for sure. That's right. <laughs> it's ta- we've done <laughs> we it. want special forces building that house. That's for sure. <laughs> and so, Randy couple more quick questions here. What would you attribute your company's tremendous success to? It's really simple. It's about the house. It's about the house. From the time I started, I thought, you know, I'm just going to build perfect product. And I used to sell my houses myself, and i just look my clients in the eye and just say, it's a perfect house, and we're going we're gonna to make it right. And so for the last 32 years, we've always had really good subs, and we've always taken really good care of our clients. And about... I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, we started using this product called Rain Screen on our houses. And it's where the siding shimmed away from the sidewall and it's extra flashed. We haven't had a window or door leak or siding leak for like 12 years, nothing. And so that really helps. And we use kiln bread lumber and just all the stuff we do. We're just housing geeks over here. And we just, they're just really well built. And we've got a customer service guy that's a lot like the Maytag repairman. He really doesn't have much to do. So, yeah, it's really about the house. I, I tell my employees, we treat everybody fair, including ourselves. And if somebody wants us to do something that is, you know, maybe make the client happy, but it's detrimental to the house, we won't do it. You know, we're the experts and we know what we're doing and that's what we do. So it's, it's really just about staying with your product and knowing, knowing what you can do and what you can't, you know. Yeah, and that's a real, you know, that's a real testament to your product to have as many houses as you guys crank out and to have, uh, you know, your, your customer service guy be a Maytag repairman. Not all builders have that situation, that's for sure. But, yeah, you know, it's kind of weird. If I have somebody pissed at me, I can't sleep. So I just want to just deal with it and just make, make people happy. And there are some people that are pissed at the car dealer and their kid's teacher and their spouse and everything else, and they can't be happy. But for the most part, we keep people pretty happy. We try hard. And Randy, your houses do have great curb appeal. I have to say, I mean, I've admired that many times over the years. In fact, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but one of my my lead buyer's agent lives in one of your houses, and we use that anytime we are working with a buyer and they, they, they bring up Renaissance. That's one of the things we say is like, look, this is what we do. We buy and sell houses every day. And my lead buyer's agent, of all the houses out there, that's what she purposefully chose. And they just have great curb appeal, great finishes. One thing that I wanted to mention to you that you do that I've always admired, because I'm a marketing guy and I, I love marketing and branding. I've noticed, I don't know if you do it all the time, but you've done it on a lot of your products. You put your brand in the driveway. Right. We've been doing that for probably 15 years. It's a brass plaque that we get out of a company out in, I think, New Jersey. And we put him uh, right in the concrete, and it's just it's mark of pride and lets people know we, we've been here. And obviously, we you know a lot of people, they don't know who built their home. Well, in one of ours, they know. And we're here, and we get a lot of people calling, hey, you, you know, my house is built in 2002, and we've got a question about, you know, the heating or whatever. And, you know, we... 
we're a resource, so we we help them. So really, really yeah. smart because I think you hit the nail on the head. Like so many houses, I mean, you, you know when it's first listed, who built it, but then a year, 10 years later, somebody driving by or walking up, do they really know? But that was that's just a clever way to have your house branded. I mean, Nike doesn't want to not have that with their shoes, so why should a half million, a million dollar house not have the same thing going on? Along those lines, I was going to ask you another question. I've always felt like the builders who really build the best products live in them a lot and move a lot from one to the next, continuously improving and figuring out what they should have done on the last one. Would you put yourself in that boat? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I bought 18 acres in 1990 out in Stafford at the end of a dead-end road. It's just, it's my little heaven. And I built a house out there and it's really kind of funny. I built this big colonial and Obviously, I'm single now and my kids have all moved on. And so I live above my barn in a really cool loft and I have this big house that's vacant. And someday I'll get down to get around to tearing it down and building a cool uh, one level contemporary that I want. But I love the property. So I've lived the same place since uh, 1990. You know, I haven't moved. You defy (laughs) my theory then. You defy my theory. Hey, is that someday going to be in the Urban Growth Foundry, by the way? I think Stafford's all zone. It's not. It's uh, south of uh, 205. And- gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Hey, tell us about your Street of Dreams experience, Randy. Have you been in those before, and do you plan on being in them in the future? You know, my first one was in 1993 in West Lynn, and it was really fun. I was 29, and I was really intimidated because there were a lot of big-name builders in it, and I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing? And I came up with this design, and I had an architect draw it up at the time, and and it just really was what the market wanted. And uh, I called it Splendor in the Grass. And the thing won all the awards, won Best to Show, the whole thing. I'm like, damn. So then I put on my little work trucks in the street and Best to Show Builder the next year. And then, uh, then the next year, I built the same house at Merrillhurst. And it won that show, too. I just I flopped it. Garage left to garage right. And the same plan. I called it Southern Comfort then. And, the, you know, those were fun years. And then we've done, a, I don't know seven or eight and won a bunch of awards and it really put my company on the map and I recommend builders that want to be in the game. I know Tucker's done it as well to build in the street of dreams. It's a really good validation that you're able to, you know, build a home like that and be in the market and someday we'll do it again. But right now we're just so busy doing what we do that uh, it takes a ton of effort. And right now I I just don't have the time, but someday we will. Yeah, it does take a lot of bandwidth, no doubt about that. It's it's a commitment. <laughs> it's huge. You touched on another thing, Randy, there that I, I hadn't even really thought about and wasn't going to talk about. But, you know, you name your houses pretty well, the models on your houses. You are kind of a marketing guy, whether you know it or not. I'm sure you do know it. But, I mean, I've seen your various products over the years, and I've always admired you have, like, good names for them. I've seen Windsor, Thurman, Benson. You just rattled off a couple others that – I haven't seen before, but obviously they date a ways back. So I think that's another cool component to what you do. It's really just kind of that overall package that you put together with everything from the branding and the naming of it to the the product itself. So kudos for that. Thank you. Yeah, so we have fun. wrapping up, if one of our listeners is interested in learning more about your beautiful homes, where should they go? Who should they call? Well, if it's the city, Amanda Andrus, I don't have her number handy, but she's on our just renaissancehomes.com, just renaissancehomes, Google it. 
Renaissance Homes Portland. Amanda Andrus is our city salesperson. And then Jack Hall and Leslie A.E. are out in the suburbs. And so it's, yeah, just go on our website. And we have Christine Church here in the office keeping everything up to date. So the website is up to date all the time with what's available. And we have a list sometimes that we put out before things are listed too. So it's kind of nice to jump on that and see what's coming up. Might not have prices, but at least people can see what, what we have coming up. Yeah, upcoming inventory for, you know, especially with uh, housing as in demand as it is right now, it's a great feature for sure. Yeah, it is. We even have agents right now searching tax records, finding out, you know, and they're doing their job. They're doing great. Finding out, oh, geez, you own a lot over here. What's going on? My clients want it. It's like, well, we're in permits right now and we're, we're it's coming. So, yeah, so it's there just isn't enough inventory for the amount of buyers that are here. It just isn't. Well, it's a good time to be building houses, right, Randy? Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's much different than 2008 and nine, I'll tell you. Yeah, it is on all fronts, that's for sure, right, Steve? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we sometimes gripe about different little challenges, and a lot of times our challenges right now are just being too busy and having too much going on, but boy, I'll take those any day, all day long over some of the other that's challenges we've seen in the not-so-distant past. Totally agree. That's for sure. Well, hey, Randy, we really appreciate you coming on the show. I think we talked about a lot of really great stuff. I'm sure our listeners thoroughly enjoyed it. I know I did. I'm sure Steve did as well. So thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Randy. We'll see you around Club Sport. All right, guys, this wraps up episode 32 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. I'm sure you guys thoroughly enjoyed that. We want to thank Randy once again for joining us. That was an absolutely fantastic interview. We covered a lot of great stuff. And it was a joy to talk to him and kind of dig into what's going on in the uh, in the world of building houses that obviously I spend my days in and, and Steve does to some extent when we talk about it each week here on the show. But that wraps up episode 32. We'll be back next week with another great show. So we'll see you guys then. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.